Chile's COVID-19 vaccination program is one of the most successful in the world. Edinburgh's historic George Street is set to become pedestrianized. The Golden Globes bring a few surprises, and a city in Portugal has started to microchip trees to help manage its natural resources. Monocle's correspondents are here to discuss those stories today, here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Monday, the 1st of March, and I'm Carlotta Rubello. Joining me today here in Studio One at Midori House in London are Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and Monocle 24's culture correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome both back to the show. Andrew, I want to start with you because there's a brand new edition of Monocle magazine out. So tell us a bit more so our listeners know to rush to newsstands this very second. Well, we've dipped our toes well maybe our whole feet actually into a topic which is 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 pressing but which actually is a bit more complicated than you think is going to be which is the notion of sustainability and, and what makes products durable and long-lasting and what makes conversations sustainable what makes uh, communities sustainable so I guess this has always been at the heart of the things we've done at Monocle since the beginning because you know we've always been thinking that everything should be built to last and you shouldn't have a throwaway culture. You should try and buy products that, where people are paid a proper industrial salary for making them. But bringing that to page and actually talking about those things is is tricky because every t- thing you raise, there's going to be somebody who says, well, I'm not so sure. I think you should do this. So we've wanted to try and bring it in a more holistic way to people. So it's you you pre- present a lot of small nudges you can do. It's enticing as well because, again, sometimes with this topic, it's like people think, oh, my God, I'm going to get lost here. I don't know what to do. I don't know what the best thing is. And we've just tried to introduce people to lots of people who are doing their best efforts around the world to nudge on everything from how you make a truck to how you make a community and how you do that in a better way. Fernando, not to put you on the spot, but I do know that uh, you are a fan of plastic straws and we cannot convince you to change to a more sustainable alternative. But I'll ask you the question anyway. How sustainable is your way of life? Well, I mean, I don't want to boast here, but I think it's pretty sustainable because, you know, what I liked about the new issue as well, which I read, and and, and I'm glad Monaco is not like that because I do believe some brands, they just like, they, they change their fonts to green and they say, this is our sustainable kind of, you know, I, I think this is a bit fake as well. Mm. You know, I think sustainability is much more than that. I mean, that plastic straw thing, maybe you're right, <laughs> but, but, you know, during my life, you know, for example, one thing that I care a lot, small business, where I live, I, I make sure to go like to, to small places and even in the new issue uh, our correspondent uh, in Spain Dianaldos he did a lovely story on this kind of resurgent kioscos in, in Barcelona he did a package for the stack as well and, and it's lovely because and so for example sometimes there's music outside the new stands to attract customers I think this is so beautiful and, and I think we can what we can do as citizens as well is support those amazing things as well so yeah pretty sustainable huh? well we'll, I'll still try to convince you to ditch the plastic straws but that's a battle I know I'm never going to win. Thank you both for joining us on the late edition today. Let's begin today's show with a look at Chile and COVID-19. While much of South America is struggling to vaccinate its population, Chile's program is currently one of the most successful worldwide, with over 16% of its citizens now have been inoculated. Fernando, this is a story that you've been following for us here on Monocle. Tell us a bit more about it and why is Ch- 
Australia is such a success? I mean, it is being a fantastic story there. So 16% of their citizens have been vaccinated already, which is a great number for South America, to the world, I would say, as well. And the reason is I was reading the government there. They, they, they started to look at vaccines last May. Uh, and so they bought 35 million uh, doses for a country of 19 million. Uh, so there was a, quite a lot of good planning. And another interesting factor about Chile as well, that they were, they are, it's a very open country when it comes to trade. So because of those good relationships, they managed to buy doses from China, from the US, from Germany, from a lot of sources there. So, And another thing that I must mention, um, actually in South America, some countries, they do have some good healthcare systems. I wouldn't say perfect because it's not perfect at all. But Chile is quite strong. It's a resilient one. Uh, and, 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 and it's been working uh, so far. I, I wouldn't say, for example, Chile had its moments. You know, they had... A, a lot of deaths because of COVID. But now I think they're, they're changing the game. And I think this is good news for the government there as well. It, interesting that you mentioned the government there because the president, Sebastian Piñera, he is seeking re-election and this could prove to be good news for him. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he, he would, there will be a different candidate from the mm. same coalition. Uh, and it's funny because Sebastian Piñera, he was not a popular president. There was very low ratings, a lot of protests in Chile. As I said, you know, it's not a, the perfect government in a way. But, you know, some people are wondering that for the November election, the candidate from this coalition, which will be decided in July, some people might say, well, this has been a success and this is a very important thing in contrast to other South American countries. I mean, just look at Brazil, where cases are still very high. We don't have enough doses for our citizens. So I think, you know, this could be a, you know, a plus factor for his candidate uh, in November. I think it also shows just you know, what wealth does as well. You know, Chile is the, is the wealthiest Latin American country, traditionally has a very successful healthcare system and there's something about the, the the linear nature of the country it's very good on logistics as well it's very good at shipping things around and moving things around the country so it had some things on its side in the first place but you're you're, you're right I was there two years ago just when the demonstrations were starting and you, you you saw how much there is still a divide there is still poverty there and there are many people who didn't feel particularly included in the in the story but again it's just the same here as in the UK you know that we have many problems here but when you saw the approval ratings at the weekend for Boris Johnson 68% of people now saying that his his policies are correct and they support the measures he's taking and they believe it, it, his plan through the coronavirus is the correct one you see that when you get the vaccination numbers going in your favor then there's then suddenly people get behind you it's it's a it's a very good thing to be in charge of if you can do it right uh, that brings me exactly to the question i wanted to ask you andrew because obviously uh, boris johnson and his government's handling of the pandemic hasn't always been seen as positively as you were describing but the fact that the vaccination program is a, a success here in the UK. I think it's fair to say that so far, the vaccination drive, that is really changing things. Do you think the government will be able to keep this momentum going? So, so far in the UK, they've just done over 30% of the population. And anecdotally, you know, certainly somebody in our office today who's only in their 40s has already had their jab last week. Uh, some neighbours of mine who are in their early 50s are having it. So they're, they're racing through the categories. Now, it's been a huge boost for Boris Johnson. And I think that if he continues to play this well, and we don't have to go back into additional lockdowns, and if the, the steps that he's laid out happen for opening up society, then I think he will be 
in a very strong position. People have already begun to forget all the horrors and all the, the complicated things, the failures by PPE, the, the numbers of deaths. It's kind of oddly all forgiven if there's this kind of promise of, you know, a summer is strange, but that's how the, the, the public works, that they just want to get back to some normality. And if he can deliver that, then he's in a very strong position, I think. Well, let's turn now to Edinburgh. Anyone who has visited the city will know how packed its main thoroughfare, George Street, can get, with cars and pedestrians vying for space on the historic street. But now there are moves to pedestrianise the city centre as part of the City of Edinburgh Council's 10-year transformation project, which will see the city centre become largely car-free over the next decade. Well, earlier we heard from Leslie McInnes. She's Edinburgh Council's Transport and Environment Convener. The plan really is to return it to its natural beauty, shall we say. At the moment, George Street is a wonderful example of classical architecture. It's one of the most beautiful streets you could find. But unfortunately, its nature has now become dominated by cars, primarily cars circling to try and find a car parking space. Well, that that reduces everything. It reduces the beauty of the street and it reduces people's experience of the street. And it also reduces the environment that businesses and hospitality businesses are operating on, including the kind of venues um, for things like our Edinburgh Festival uh, events. So this is an attempt to remove the cars from it and make it much more accessible, make a considerable difference to the quality of the street in terms of the, the stone that we use on the on the walkways to allow access to other sustainable transport options, retain access for people with mobility issues. There are all sorts of potential benefits attached to this particular scheme. Leslie McInnes there. She's a transport and environment convener for Edinburgh Council. She was speaking to us earlier on The Globalist. Um, Andrew, I like how when they were describing these these plans, um, they mentioned how this would bring an European boulevard feel to George Street. Now, of course, it's important to say they, they are not completely pedestrianising the entire city, um, just some parts of it and reducing uh, car usage. But how much of an impact can this actually you know, have on such a main thoroughfare as George Street is? Well, first of all, we should say that, you know, that these terms like uh, European boulevard, that, that, the image of that, that kind of brings to your mind of people wandering around on a summer's evening. Let's be frank, Edinburgh has a lot of cold weather and lots of rain even in the winter, a bit like London, but even tougher. So it's it's not just enough to pedestrianise these places. I think it can do a lot of good. I think it can be very beneficial if you can control the amount of traffic, if you make people feel comfortable about being outdoors. We are seeing that demand during this period of the pandemic for alfresco eating. And I think that that can be sustained, even if you do it in a more covered way, like you'd see on on the boulevards of Paris, for example, where people do sit outside cafes and bistros. But there is an an attempt to cover up the the, the kind of street furniture as well. So if it rains, it it doesn't matter. But it's, it's not enough of itself uh, for various reasons I had to be in this in the town of Stratford-upon-Avon last week and um, during my kind of walks around the town it was it was interesting because it is a a town that's been taken over by the car in 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 the 20th century and the main high street um, bridge street is is if it was a, a wide road from in traditional times and it's it's designed for the car and it's it's not very nice now they've tried to put up these these plastic barriers so that you have more pavement space but it just looks ugly and it is badly done but then at the end of that there's another part where actually the home of shakespeare is and that is all pedestrianized but do you know what 
it's no better. It, it's it's strangely bland. It's it's all one uniform surface. It's got kind of okay shops. It, it, there's very little planting. There's no boulevard sense just because you've pedestrianised things. So when you when you go into the process of pedestrianising. That isn't an end in itself. You have to think about how you activate the space. And that doesn't mean jugglers. That means how you make spaces where people feel comfortable sitting down and lingering. How you bring places where maybe older people would stop and have a natter with friends. How you allow restaurants and shops to tumble out and use the space outside. You know, farmers markets are a good activation of those spaces but there's a limit to how many of them you can have. So what are all the other things that will be needed to activate those spaces? So for Edinburgh, it's great, but you know, you, you can risk, up, risk everything ending up a little bit like Leicester Square here in London, which is kind of great because it's, it's pedestrianised and you certainly don't want cars whizzing around there anymore. But it's not exactly an appealing place to go and sit. So it's not enough in itself. What else are you going to do to make sure that all of these things work? I think it's still, even though I've been in the UK for <laughs> eight years and a few months, uh, one of the things that still shocks me is how excited sometimes my friends will get about a certain place that has outdoors area and how close it is to the actual road with a car. That there's that division of you know allowing you to breathe a bit in uh, what's you know what spills onto the street from businesses. It still needs a lot of work in a lot of areas here in London. But Fernando, Andrew mentioned there this demand and this appetite for all fresco dining that's emerging. You live in Soho. That's an area in London where that's been quite successful because of the pandemic over the past year and is set to come back when things reopen later this year. How do you view the whole pedestrianisation, even though temporary, of Soho and the potential it can bring? I I think it's kind of a positive thing overall. And by the way, I believe they're reopening on the 12th of April again in restaurants. And, and, And I agree with Andrew, we shouldn't let it be bland. But I don't think we're going to have this danger in Soho. I think Soho is quite unique with all its kind of historic uh, restaurants. Uh, But of course I would like it, it needs to be a little bit pretty as well, Mm. I think. But of course last year was the pandemic, we just put some plastic chairs outside. So I think they need to think of that. They need to think about planting as well. And also the needs of the residents as well, because you know, it is also a place with a lot of deliveries because of the amount of restaurants. So they really need to think how it would work. Maybe it could be a mixed thing. So, you know, partially kind of alfresco dining, but then, you know, trucks need to get inside. <laughs> uh, and I'm, as a resident, you know, sometimes you have deliveries as well. So, you know, this has to be discussed. But I, I think it's an excellent um, idea as well. And, and even Andrew mentioned planting. I think even though London has amazing parks, I mean, it does. Uh, but I think it could have a little bit more planting in the streets. That's something f- from Brazil that you see in Rio de Janeiro, São Paulo, uh, that perhaps I think could work very well. They're trying to do that in Regent's, Regent Street. Very recently, they start putting some some plant pots. Have you, have you seen yeah, that? It's, nice. it's, it's, it's a nice, it, it felt quite nice activation. Yes, yeah, I love that. I'm pro planting. And it shows how like a simple thing like that can really change the oh, yes. the feel and yeah how how you feel generally about an area. Well, now, uh, Fernando, I'm pretty sure I already know the answer for this one. But just in case, did you or not? did you not stay up late last night? Oh, yes. Can you see my, my eye bags? <laughs> well, if so, I'm pretty sure it was because you were watching the 78th Golden Globes. As many of the awards shows over the past years have been, this was, of course, a virtual affair co-hosted by Tina Fey in New York and Emmy Poehler in Los Angeles and with a limited audience of frontline healthcare workers in both venues. 
Now, over the recent days, there's been widespread criticism over the lack of variety in the jury that's composed by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and how that's reflected in the nominations too. Let's hear a clip from the host's opening monologue. The Golden Globes are awards given out by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association is made up of around 90 international no-black journalists who (laughs) attend movie junkets each year in search of a better life. We say around 90 because a couple of them might be ghosts, and it's rumored that the German member is just a sausage that somebody drew a little face on. (laughs) At the Golden Globes, we give out awards for movies and TV, but... I mean, it's hard to tell them apart this year because movie theaters were closed and we watched everything on our phones. So you may be confused which nominees count as movies and which are considered TV. Now, TV is the one that I watch five hours straight, but a movie is the one that I don't turn on because it's two hours. I don't want to be in front of my TV for two hours. I want to be in front of the TV for one hour five times. Fernando, now as our culture correspondent, you very diligently stayed up all night covering this for us and watching the Golden Globes. Uh, what were your main takeaways? Well, first of all, we have to say that the Golden Globes are weird. And, and, and I think <laughs> the Los Angeles Times, the LA Times, they did a story and they found out those members, guys. There's so many interesting stories there. Uh, I mean, one of them is it is a psychic. It used to be a critic, but now it's a psychic. So now there some people don't they don't even work at the industry. So clearly, they have to look at the ways they kind of do the nominations. But the, the, my favorite thing about the Golden Globes is artists. They really feel comfortable because usually there's champagne on their desks, and usually there's someone drunk. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor one day she was uh, going to introduce the best drama, and she was like, "Oh, what am I actually doing here?" And there's like, "Oh yeah, the best drama." No, <laughs> But this year was a bit different because of the, you know, social distancing about COVID. And there's been some good, you know, some some historic wins here. Uh, For Best Director, we have Chloe Zhao from Nomadland. Uh, She's only the second woman to win Best Director. Uh, And she won for Best Film as well. And the first person of colour, I believe, ever to win. First woman of color, yeah. So it, it, it's been quite, quite uh, some good awards there. And, and there was a very sad moment when Chadwick uh, Boseman uh, won for Best Actor, when his wife gave the speech. I mean, it, it, I know it could sound weird, but it was so honest and heartfelt. There were a lot of tears, including mine. Uh, there was there was some there were there were some highlights there. But but I do agree that it's kind of a almost like a dodgy kind of organization in a way. But I do like the Golden Globes. Uh, Andrew, uh, I think it's the question that keeps coming back every time we have one of these new ceremonies uh, and award shows on a virtual format, which is, do they still matter, especially in this format? Because just as lovely as a description that Fernando gave, you know, it's not the same thing as when you have the real deal and the champagne is flowing and people are in front of each other. Well, especially this year, because actually they had so many kind of technical problems as well. Oh, yes. The the first award, there was a technical problem. (laughs) (laughs) So people's speeches being cut off and people feeling (laughs) that they're being done a disservice. Um, But everyone seemed to like the fact that there was like a human side to it as well, that you 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 saw some quite big stars at home with their kids and their cats jumping around and God knows what. (laughs) There was something, you know, touching about it as well. I think, though, we're getting to the end of this, you know, this period where we find it, it kind of sweet and, and nice things not working very well and looking a bit ropey. In the end, people love these things because there is a bit of glamour and there is a bit of excitement and you see who's on the red carpet. And if you don't have much of that going on, then it's it's hard to sustain in the end. And I think the other interesting thing is, you know, that it's it, it, they, they did a very good 
you know service at pointing out that the the, fa- the failure of the the committee to have people of color on it but in a way they kind of so rubbished the whole thing that you you feel sorry for the people who won because it was almost so, so discredited by the time they got an award <laughs> did it matter anyway but anyway it's 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 there's no harm done and uh, they i'm sure that by next year you'll notice that a large number of people of color are suddenly on the committees because that's that that calling out seems to have worked well for other uh, award ceremonies as well maybe they should change the psychic one to another uh, yeah. one <laughs> works in industry <laughs> that would be a great place to start <laughs> Maybe, Fernando, you can put your name down. Mm, I love that. <laughs> well, finally today, I want to take you both to my hometown, at least for a story for now. I promise we can try to go there together when COVID is all over and we're allowed to travel. But uh, the city of Funchal in the Portuguese island of Madeira has a peculiar new project. It has been putting microchips in its local trees as a way to help manage the island's natural heritage. And safe to say this is the first of its kind in the entire uh, country. Not sure if the rest of Portugal will adopt uh, the, the same scheme. Uh, Andrew, honestly, what do you make of this idea? It seems to be particularly useful because of um, the old centenary trees and to track their health. But is it going a bit too far to put microchips into nature? Well, it might be a bit of a gimmick. So you, you would hope that they could employ somebody just as easily to walk around and, and make sure that the trees were well tended for. But it does do a, a tiny service. It shows you that in the end, we have to start valuing the things that are around us. And maybe trees don't get noticed even by the the people who love them and are around them all day. And it, it just puts them to the top of the list a bit. It's just, it's just a, it's a way of saying, look, we're keeping an eye on these trees. Don't get any clever ideas about <laughs> sawing one down, for example, outside your house. We need more of this. And and again, we come back to the same question. It's, it's, it links back to the reason we did this issue. You know, trees are a, a, a fine example of how it adds canopy to pavements and shades things and drops the temperature of cities. And if you choose you know, the right trees, they can be in situ for, you know, as you say, hundreds of years. So maybe a little bit of a gimmick, but not a bad one. Fernando, earlier when talking about Regent Street, you were saying how much uh, love you have for trees in cities. I'm sure there's no data protection issues here with any of the microchips in trees. What do you make of the idea? Well, listen, if it's to protect the trees, I have no issues with it. And and I have to say, I mean, I do love a bit of planting cities. And I think Funchal does this job very well. I mean, but you're almost lucky, right, Carlotta? What mm. the ecosystem of, of Madeira and Funchal is just amazing. The variety of plants and trees. I've, I was there last year. It, it's a really beautiful place. And, you know, if they want to put chips, ship chips, I don't, I don't know how to say. <laughs> microchips that's right if they want to use microchips let them use it <laughs> or just have some chips exactly <laughs> chips by the tree I mean sign me up maybe that's the plan for our trip there Andrew Tuck and Fernando Augusto Pacheco thank you both for being with us here on the late edition today's program was edited by Sam Impey and Steph Chungo I'm Carlotta Rabello here in London the late edition is back at the same time tomorrow thank you for listening 